as we read this morning there in verse 1, you know, it says, for this Melchizedek. Uh, he is mentioned in the last verse of the previous chapter. He's mentioned earlier on in the book, Melchizedek. And something else that you might find very interesting, uh, if you've read chapter 7 in preparation for this morning at all, uh, is that the words priest and priesthood are found no less than 23 times here in chapter 7 from verse 1 all the way through the 6th verse of chapter 8. I mean, in a total of some 34 verses, priest or priesthood is mentioned 23 times. I mean, it's a bit over 78% uh, of the content. And so just take a guess at what the, the emphasis of the text in which we're involved in is this morning. You're right. Uh, priest or priesthood. More specifically, a better priesthood, a better high priest. Which leads to the author's declarations of a better covenant. But before we go there, or in order to get there, to the priest, the priesthood, a better priest, a better priesthood, a better covenant. Before we even get there, or rather I would put it this way, in order to arrive there properly, in order to arrive at those things in an informed way, uh, we must first deal with this character called Melchizedek. Who was he? Why is he significant? More importantly, if, if he was significant enough to be mentioned in Holy Writ, then how is he significant today? Who was he? Why was he significant when, then in the writing? And how is he significant today? That is my, my charge and my challenge. I, I must admit, reading through this this week, it's like, Lord, how will we bring this almost, you know, um, foreign concept of this man who we don't understand his name or rarely mentioned to the front living room of the church here at Calvary Chapel. So I've entitled the message The Significance of Melchizedek Then and Now, Part 1. And we're going to endeavor to do that to really find out why he's significant both then and now, and we'll be in chapter 7 through chapter 8, verse 6, for probably several weeks. But as I said, in, in order to uh, arrive at priest and priesthood, we must first deal with Melchizedek. In order to understand Melchizedek and the verses that we just read, Maybe some of you go, oh, yeah, I know what happened there and returning from the slaughter. And, oh, yeah, I just read it yesterday or something. You know, it's like, no, probably most of us did not. Maybe some of us did. But in order to really gain an understanding of this guy, we must first see what the author is referring to. And in order to do that, you're going to have to open your Bible and turn backwards to Genesis chapter 14. Genesis chapter 14, to your left, all the way toward the beginning. And while you're turning, you know, they say a healthy church is a church that you can hear the flipping of the pages of a Bible. While you're turning, I'll give you a little bit of history that will bring us to where we're going to read in chapter 14 of the book of Genesis. You remember, we've talked a little bit about it. I'm intentionally going to move somewhat quickly, is that in chapter 12 of Genesis, uh, Yahweh, the Lord, spoke to Abraham, capital L-O-R-D, uh, tetragrammaton, Yahweh, Yahweh, spoke to Abraham and told him to come out of his country, to leave his family, leave his father, mother, and go to a land in which I will show you. And so... Uh, Abraham hears this call to leave and, and he sets out to go. Now, 
Uh, I was able to employ, I think, Chris, can we put that map up? Did you find a map? Right, there it is. I uh, was going to get one of those fancy red pointers, but we couldn't find one at church this morning. So anyway, uh, I will have to describe. Oh, don't leave the camera. Um, <laughs> the person at home is going, where did he go? Uh, okay, so if you're looking at the map, down your lower right-hand corner is Ur. If you can see that, you are. That's where Abraham was when God spoke to him. said, leave Ur of the Chaldees. And so our... Uh, precious Bible maps and stuff show us that he traveled northwest all the way up to Haran. Then he came south down past uh, what we see there, Bethel and Hebron. But if you'll see a little writing, there's Canaan or Canaan. And then the arrow keeps going where he goes over to the tip of the peninsula of Egypt, going west. And then the arrow turns around where he goes back to, uh, uh, over there, I can't read that word, Beersheba, and Bethel is in there and and that sort of thing. Now, I'm bringing that out because I want you to see the light Canaan or Canaan. So that's how he traveled. And so as he traveled, he comes by a city that was named Salem. We call it Salem. It was a Canaanite city. When God spoke to him, he was telling him to leave this uh, society in which was uh, steeped in ideology and pagan religious, religious worship because God wanted to reveal himself to Abraham in special revelation. And so as Abraham travels, he, he comes down and, and he passes by this Canaanite city called Salem on his way. And then he, he, there was a famine in the land while he was traveling. Once he reached Canaan, 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 however you like to phrase it, he was supposed to stay. But there was a famine in the land. And so his first step, uh, father of the faith, who did not act in faith, was to go down to Egypt to relieve himself of the famine that was going on. Now, while he was there, the father of the faith, um, filled with fear, there's a pharaoh there, he tells his wife, Sarah, tell the pharaoh you're my sister, because we don't know how it's going to go, and and if you're my sister, maybe he'll treat us well. And so, sure enough, the Pharaoh has an eye towards Sarah and wants to take her as one of his wives. And eventually, if you read through 12 and 13, you find out that the Pharaoh finds out that Sarah is not his sister, but his wife, because a plague comes upon the land. And so the Pharaoh says to Abram, why didn't you tell me she was your wife? You know, you need to take her back and go get out of here. And so he leaves Egypt. That's where the arrow comes out now and goes back up toward Beersheba. But he leaves with a whole lot more possession than he he started out with. Now he has silver, gold, cattle and all this. And he's leaving and, and he goes up and he remembers this city called Salem, Salam, he's going that way, which, by the way, just uh, added no charge here. The word Salam uh, finds its way into a beautiful Hebrew greeting known today as Shalom, peace. So it was a Canaanite city, the name meaning peace. It finds its way the uh, Ugaritic dialogue was embraced by Hebrew language in part. And so this word finds its way into the Hebrew language, shalom, from Salem. And also Salem will contribute its five letters to what inevitably ends up becoming a central city to the Hebrew people of Jerusalem. So, very important, if you will, 
And what we read in chapter 7 of number 1, uh, chapter 7, verse 1, 2, and 3, was that as Abraham is now coming back, he's got all this wealth, he's got his wife, he passes by the city. What he finds when he gets to Canaan is there's a war going on. Oh, my goodness. By the way, when he, when he left and he was traveling, he did have his brother Lot with him. And as he left Egypt to come back to Canaan, he and his brother, now both very wealthy, a lot of livestock, a lot of possession. You may be, some of you Bible readers may be familiar with this. They came to a ridge and a hillside, and they realized that they both they couldn't stay together. They had too much possession for them uh, to stay together and support both. So Abraham said to his brother Lot, look, we, we can no longer travel together. You pick the direction you want to go, and I'll go the other way. And so the text tells us that Lot looked over the hillside and he saw the well-watered plains of Jordan to the east. And so he chose, Lot chose the well-watered plains of Jordan which had within it the city of Sodom. And he went there and settled, and Abraham went the other way further into Canaan. Now, why am I going through all of this? Well, it's important to the text that we read, because we're going to, as I was saying, on his way back, now he and Lot split, Abraham continues into Canaan, and what he finds out is that there's a war going on. There's five kings in a northern area against four kings in a more southern area. And he finds himself right in the middle of pagan, idolatrous rulers fighting over land. Oh my goodness, not a new concept, right? I mean, haven't rulers on the earth been fighting over land since we can remember? Some of the world wars were all about. It's what Ukraine is about. It's what Israel's about. That's what's, what's going on in Taiwan and China is about. They're fighting wars over property land. And here, so just, I say that to bring it, you know, to the living room of our experience. Don't, don't think this is foreign or unrelated. It's, it's the, nothing new under the sun. It's been going on forever. Here's Abraham finding himself right in the middle of pagan, idolatrous, uh, false god worship rulers fighting over land. And he finds out when someone escapes from one of the companies that his brother Lot has been taken and is now being held. And so Abraham, he, he wrestles up 300 men within his army. And he goes and, and uh, accomplishes this phenomenal rescue with 300 men. He goes in and he rescues his brother Lot and brings Lot and all of his stuff back out. Now. Put your eyes on verse 17. Chapter 14, Genesis. Verse 17. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shiva. That is the valley, that is the king's valley. Now, Shiva, in, in the area of Canaan, Canaan there, Canaan, there was this valley called Shiva. Archaeologists have discovered that that's none other than the, the Himnon Valley that is still there today. And so this ruler, this king of Sodom, goes to meet Abraham, who had just rescued his brother, and helped the king of Sodom and his other four kings defeat, uh, uh, his name is, Chedorlaomer and his three kings, Abraham was instrumental in helping that victory take place. And so the, the king of Sodom goes out to meet Abraham in the valley of Shiva, that is the king's valley, 
after his return from the defeat of Kedor Lamar and the kings who were with him, then, verse 18, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of the Most High God. Stop there. Time out. What's going on? I mean, wait a minute. Do we not remember what the Canaanite cultures and the Amorites and the Hittites and the Jebusites and all of those-ites were famous for? Uh, Don Richardson, in his book, Eternity in Their Hearts, great book, reminds us that the Canaanites were notorious for idolatry, child sacrifice, legalized homosexuality, and temple prostitution. That was ingrained in their society, and yet in the middle of this uh, kind of off-to-the-side city called Salem, or Salem, in this valley that they've attributed, well, that's where the, the king's valley is. That's the king. It's this king there, and he's, he's, his name is Melchizedek. It was actually a Canaanite, combination of Canaanite words, uh, Melchi, king, Zadok, righteousness, king of righteousness. Uh, we know that to be so because it also surfaced in, like I said, Ugaritic text and uh, dialogue. To study uh, epidemiology at all, is that the right word? Uh, the study of words we find that these things are not just uh, true scripturally, but they're the, the scriptures and that they are true are reinforced through textual history. And so, in, in my point being, in the middle of this uh, horrific culture that practices prostitution, legalized homosexuality, child sacrifice, and all kinds of vile things, there's this king who has the name King of Righteousness. Now, you and I might say, well, oh, they must have just misnamed the guy, right? How can he possibly have that name and be a king in such a society? Wait. Because when the king of Sodom comes out, we see he doesn't bring anything. But when Melchizedek comes out, he brings bread and wine, for he was priest of the Most High God. His name, in fact, El Elyon, is introduced right here in Scripture. He is priest of El Elyon. Now, hang in there. When God spoke to Abraham, he, the Lord spoke to Abraham, Genesis 12, 1. And I'll just make sure that's what it says. You know, can... Now the Lord said to Abraham, you'll notice in 12, verse 1, it's L-O-R-D, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Yahweh, or a tetragrammaton. It, that's, that's how God re revealed himself to Abraham. But now... God reveals himself to Abraham through this Melchizedek as El Elyon. You'll be interested to know that the word El was also, or Elyon, was associated in the Canaanite language and was a word for God. Again, Don Richardson, who was Elyon, both El and Elyon were Canaanite names for Yahweh himself, El occurs frequently in ancient Ugaritic text. The Canaanite name El even worked its way into the Hebrew language when we see cities like Beth El, house of God, and El Shaddai, God Almighty. We read in Genesis 1, in the beginning God, Elohim. And so it's kind of this phenomenal thing, like all of a sudden in the middle of this horrible culture, God has a witness, right? In the middle of this horrible culture, God has a witness. That's what I want you to remember. 
Now, Melchizedek's role and his presence brought to the table general revelation of the one true God. God will eventually bring special revelation of himself through Abraham into a people known as Israel, through the lineage of the people of Israel, to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. All, all special revelation. But general revelation is being represented by Melchizedek in the Valley of Shiva amongst a uh, perverse society. Why do I share that this morning? You and I should take comfort. You and I should be encouraged that God remains faithful to have a witness of himself in the midst of a perverse society, no matter how perverse that society is. So his first significance is that he brings general revelation of God. God is always giving general revelation of himself. How many people have you met that say, yeah, there's probably a God, or I believe in God, but I don't like church. Or, you know, the Bible, I'm not so sure it's its word. But yeah, you know, God, why? Because when, when you and I come through that birth canal and we breathe our first breath and we begin to become conscious of the environment the world in which we live, God has inbred into, is this old news? I don't think so. God has inbred into every human being the sense of his presence. You, you wonder, you say, are you sure? Didn't Paul write about it in Romans chapter 1? He said, for since the creation of the world, his, God's invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. But because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts and in their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible men and birds and four-footed animals and creepy things. Therefore, in other words, they started worship creation instead of the creator. And so God gave them over to themselves to uncleanliness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Hey, nothing new under the sun. It's going on right there. And yet God says, well, I'm going to plant my witness. Melchizedek. He's going to, his presence will continue to put general revelation before the eyes of all mankind. So here's this pilgrim, finds himself in an, in an environment steeped in pagan idolatry, and yet in the midst of that, he finds a king who represents the true and the living God, who some have rejected, and yet he himself is trying to follow. Second significance comes to us, really, as we uh, read on in verse 19 of chapter 14 of Genesis. Notice what Melchizedek did. And this is what we read in Hebrews. Melchizedek comes out with the bread and the wine, and he was priest of the Most High God, verse 19, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham of God Most High. So they got the same God. Melchizedek is priest of El Elyon. Abraham is of El Elyon. And this El Elyon, God Most High, is possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High. And let's just bless God while we're at it who has delivered your enemies into your hand, and he, small h, meaning Abraham, gave him, Melchizedek, a tithe of all. Tithe meaning tenth. So here, 
Melchizedek comes out. He places this blessing over Abraham. A bless, he blesses God. And Abraham responds by giving Melchizedek a tenth of all the spoils that he, of all that he had, rather. Not the spoils, of all that he had. Now, we're going to find that to be important and interesting. Um, I'm going to ask you to just kind of keep a marker there. Turn back to Hebrews 7. Hebrews 7, because the second significance, and you're arriving this morning, you're going, I thought we are going to have a message. We're having a Bible study. Yeah, both. And so what we find, the second significance is as we read here in Hebrews chapter 7, notice in verse 4, the author carrying forward the answer to the question of of why Melchizedek is significant, read verse 4 with me. He says, now consider, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 4, now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi, who receive the priesthood, have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now, beyond all contradiction or beyond all dispute, the lesser is blessed by the better. Here, mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them, of whom it is witnessed that he lives. Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Shall I define that? Simple understanding is that Abraham becomes the father of a nation of people known as the Israelites. God delivers the Israelites from Egypt, takes them to Mount Sinai, gives them a law by which they are to live their lives. Within the context of that law, there is a priesthood, a Levitical priesthood from the tribe of Levi, and which through that, tri- through that priesthood, the people, as they are worshiping the one true God, are to bring sacrifices, offerings of worship, and pay tithes. Now, in that Levi and the priesthood of Levi came out of the loins of Abraham, the author to the reader of Hebrews is saying, in reality, those Levites paid tithes to Melchizedek as well. And without dispute, uh, the lesser is blessed by the greater or the better. And so hang in there. Second significance. The second significance of Melchizedek is that his priesthood and or his authority is better than the authority and the priesthood of the Aaronic level. The Levites, Aaron was the first priest. The Levites came from Aaron. And so the author to the Hebrews, seeking to affirm to them a better priesthood, a higher priest, and a better covenant, shows by this illustration that Melchizedek, his priesthood is better than Aaron's priesthood, than the Levitical priesthood. And so... What was the job of the priest? Remember, I remember years ago going into a ornate building and there was this man in a robe and that was all I knew about maybe what a priest is or priesthood meant or anything. And this person would talk and 
you would think he's like talking for God to you. And, and in reality, scripturally, biblically, the role, the, bless you, the role of the priest was twofold. Remember what it is? We've talked about it here many times. Number one, first the priest was to stand before God on behalf of the people that he served. And secondly, he was stand, to stand before the people on behalf of God. He was to stand before God on behalf of the people and intercede for them and, and bring their offerings of worship and sacrifice to the one true God. And then he was to stand before the people on behalf of God and to deliver his word to them. Here the author, I'm going to have to move very quickly here. Here the author says, well, Melchizedek's priesthood is even better than all those years, thousands of years that you were serving and trying to live under the Levitical priesthood and the Aaronic priesthood. There's a better one, and it's Melchizedek. Melchizedek's priesthood. Now, we were told in Hebrews that in Hebrews 7.3 that this Melchizedek, he didn't have a father, he didn't have a mother, or at least there was no record of a father and a mother. And the Hebrews were meticulous about following their genealogy and recording the order by which someone would come into the world. And yet there's no record of the genealogy of this Melchizedek without mother, without a father without genealogy, having neither beginning of days or end of life, but made like unto the Son of God. Ah, there's his hint. There's his hint that there's a better priesthood than the Aaronic or Levitical priesthood that would have come from the father of faith of Abraham, father of faith Abraham, and that that better priesthood was represented in the person of Melchizedek, do you know how many times he's mentioned in scripture? Three. Old Testament Genesis. Then the patriarch David mentions Melchizedek. But speaking of Christ prophetically in Psalm 104, he says, thou art or you are, speaking of Jesus, a, a, a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then here in Hebrews. So why is it significant? Second significance, Melchizedek's priesthood represents a better priesthood than the highly esteemed Aaronic priesthood of Jesus' day and always. When Jesus came on the scene, guess what priesthood the Hebrews were working under? The Levitical priesthood. And now you have some Christians that came out of Judaism that are Hebrews that are questioning well, can we just put them both together or I'll just go back to Judaism. No, 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 wait, 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 time out. There's a better priesthood. And it's really seen through the person of Melchizedek who represents the son of God. Lastly, this morning and quickly. Um, and you're going to have to go back to Genesis 14 real quick. You got your hand there, so it's not a, a long turn. Guess what we find in Genesis 14? And this really turned me on when it came to this. And notice, now I'll bring you to verse 21. Genesis 14, 21. Now the king of Sodom said to Abraham, Give me the persons and the goods for yourself. But Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord. Yahweh, God Most High, El Elyon, the possessor of heaven and earth, the same one that Melchizedek is talking about, the same one that Abraham, and he said, that I will not take, that I will take nothing from the thread of a sandal strap to that will I not take anything that is yours, king of Sodom, lest you should say, I have made Abraham rich, except only that the young men uh, have eaten the portion of the men who went with me, uh, Anner, Exol, and Mamre, let them take their portion. There were these three others that came along with them. But basically, Abraham's saying to the king of Sodom, no, there's nothing you have that I want. And I will take nothing from you. 
for I have raised my hand or I have aligned myself or I have put my trust in the God most high. Now, this is powerful. We can't walk away this morning without this because what this says and what it means is, is the crux, it's the meat and potatoes of it this morning because if you've read anything about Sodom, you know what Sodom was like. If you read anything about the culture and the city and the people and you go you know, further on into the scriptures and, and Lot unfortunately has stayed there and uh, two angels of the Lord try to go deliver him again and it's a wicked place, horrific we get our word sodomy from what the sodomites were all about. And what the king of Sodom represents, believer, this morning, you who are watching and you who are here, he represents the gross perversion that the world can bring something into your life and satisfy. The king of Sodom, here, let me, you know, Give me the portions of goods and you can take the persons for yourself. Satan every day is whispering your ear and mine. Hey, just give a little away of the Christ that has paid the price for your sin and mine, given his life for you. Just give a little bit of him away and take a little bit of the world that, that I'm offering. We're told in 1 John, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Who here does not wrestle with pride this morning? Who here does not have a wrestle with fleshly desires? Who here is not often drawn away by what your eyes see? And you were wondering, well, when's he going to get to the point? And this is the point. Is that the world is seeking to offer to you some false... Uh, representation of what true fulfillment in life is. And Abraham says to that world representative, nothing, I will take nothing that you have, for I've raised my hand to God most high. We are told in the book of 1 John that you are of God, little children, and have overcome them, overcome the world, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Christ in you, the hope of glory this morning, believer, will empower you. And Melchizedek was right there. And Melchizedek's presence in the life and in the circumstance of Abraham empowers him to reject and refuse what the king of the world is offering him. The same thing is true for you and I this morning. And as we prepare to, to take communion together, I, I am prompted to remind you who are watching at home and anyone here in the room, if you have yet to commit your life to Christ, these elements are not for you. They're meaningless. It's grape juice and cracker. And the Apostle Paul even talks about those in Corinth were taking the blood and the body of Christ in an unworthy manner. What did he mean by that? It meant that they were just living their lives the way they wanted to in willful and known sin and yet going to these agape gatherings and, and taking of the, the wine and the bread that represented Christ. They're meaningless if you have not yet given your life to Christ, but they are everything if you have. Because it's a reminder to me and a reminder to all of us this morning of the immeasurable price that was paid for our sin. For greater love hath no man than this, but that he laid down his life for his friend. Jesus laid his life down for you. Are you willing to give up your life for him. You see, that's a question that only you and you and the privacy of God can answer. And so we've seen this morning 
three things about Melchizedek. First of all, that he represented general revelation, and God is still giving general revelation in this crazy world in which we live, that he exists, and he wants mankind to come to him. Melchizedek represents the fact that there's a better priesthood and a higher priest, Jesus, who mediates for us. He stands before God on our behalf and he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Here's my body. Here's my hands. Here's my feet. Here's my blood. Accept it as the propitiation, the payment for sin. And then he stands before us and he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Get to know me and you'll get to know my dad. Find out who I am and how much I love you and how much I can steer and direct your life. Saturate your heart and your soul with my, my words, he says, standing before us. And when it comes to the world seeking to pull you and I away from a total dependence and a total commitment to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in our life, remember that by the power of his spirit, like Abraham, we can say, I'll take nothing that you have to offer me, Satan. Nothing in Jesus' name. good enough for me hope it's good enough for you let's pray I'll invite the sisters to come forward and distribute the elements will you join me as we pray Lord thank you for your word this morning thank you for the truth of what this likened unto the Son of God, Melchizedek, shows us. And as we are here to remember what you have done for us, the sacrifice you made in the giving of your life, Lord, we humbly bow before you, knowing that this is a holy moment, a moment to rejoice, a moment to say thank you. A moment to solemnly remember that you're calling us to a deeper place. We ask that you would receive our thanks for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. The brethren will distribute the elements and then we'll partake together.
so clearly um, detailed for us in the gospel messages and particularly in Luke's gospel we have uh, that beautiful insight of the night that our Savior was betrayed uh, and yet he had gathered with those that he loved and those that loved him and followed him and he instituted on that night the very thing that we're able to still enjoy and partake of this morning known as a communion we're told that as they gathered he he took bread and he blessed it and he broke it knowing that the cross was before him and and what was going to happen having already been given that insight by his father and he would eventually say to his father, Lord, if it, Father, if it's possible that this cup pass from me, let it pass, but nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done, your will, Dad. We recognize that he knew what was coming when he took that bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. And so this morning, we... Some 2,000 years later, by reason of this rite or this, what we call a function in the church, we're able to remember 
and we are reminded to remember what he has done for us. What he has done for you. What he has done for me. He said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat it. And as you do, remember me. Let's partake together. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Luke tells us that in the same manner he took the cup. It would have been the Hallel cup, the cup of thanksgiving. He raised it amongst them and blessed it. And he said, this is the cup of the new covenant. And those around the table would have not fully understood You and I, on this side of it, we fully understand that no longer is man saved by the obedience to a law, but we are saved by the obedience of the Son of God and our faith in his blood. He said to them, as he would say to you and I this morning, he says, this is the cup of the new covenant of my blood for the remission of sin. And as we take this morning, we're reminded that he has paid the price. We can leave this place knowing that we are forgiven, washed, free, looked upon as justified and righteous in the eyes of his Father because of his blood. He said, take it. And drink it, and as you do, remember me. Let's partake together. Thank you, Lord. The words are almost not enough, but they are what you have commanded us to say. And commanded us to give is thanks to you for not only what you have done, but who you are. And this morning, we, as your people, a collective body of believers under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, give you thanks and worship and praise you for who you are and what you've done. We ask you to receive our thanks. Put your hand upon us in the week ahead. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.